I have a confession to make. Uh, I'm a little bit of a news junkie. And uh, have you been paying attention to the news lately? If I'm being honest, uh, it's been kind of a, kind of bumming me out a little bit. <laughs> All the headlines about growing political and cultural division, you know, not just at home, but also abroad. And then all the news about ongoing wars, as well as rumors of war, with some leaders even threatening to go nuclear. And if all that weren't enough, the experts are already speculating about the next great potential plague, or the possibility of more supply and food shortages. On top of all the bad news about the economy, inflation, recession, which could drag us and maybe even the whole world into a global depression. So how are you feeling when I mention all this? Perhaps a bit anxious? I know I certainly do. I mean, if you're paying attention to any of it, it's almost irrational to not feel a little bit anxious, even if you dismiss uh, some or a lot of it. But all this anxiety leads us to ask one critical question, doesn't it? Which is, how should I respond to this? How can I respond to all this? Well, thankfully, today before us in James, the Lord is going to tell us how to respond. If or when that day of trouble comes, and this answer actually points us to the only good news that can truly counteract or serve as a healing antidote to all the bad news. All the bad news that we could hear in a whole lifetime. So, what is this precious divine answer to the urgent question of how should I respond to the day of trouble and the day of suffering? The Lord's answer is, Wait for it. Patience. Yes, patience. Now that's an answer that isn't going to fly with a lot of people, uh, not very popular with the world, and by some indicators, it's not even popular with the church. Perhaps it's not even an answer that you wanted to hear if you are in the day of trouble. But as we'll see, it is the answer. Patience in the Lord is what will empower us to see who he really is, the center of all reality, and how his compassion and mercy is the only hope that we have to get through any of this. And this brings us to our first point today, which is be patient, for the Lord is at hand. Be Patient, for the Lord is at hand. Look again with me at uh, chapter 5, verse 7, the first verse where James calls us to be patient and begins to explain the how as well as the why. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Notice that James begins here with a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not good advice. The command, be patient, therefore, brothers. Now, normally, you don't have to say something like, 
be patient to people when life is going swell, right? Or exactly how they'd like. Which clues us into the fact that the original audience of this letter, which are some of the earliest Jewish Christians, life was definitely not going their way. In fact, they were experiencing some real earthly suffering on account of being followers of Jesus, mainly in the form of poverty and persecution, which came at the hands of arrogant and abusive people that were kind of uh, throwing their wealth and their power around. Now, if life were to bring such suffering our way, is patience something that's easy to come by? Does it come naturally for any one of us? No. Quite the opposite, right? I have to admit that uh, in my younger days, I used to pride myself on how patient I thought I was, or above average in patience of other people. This was a a deep delusion, really. Um, Because through the course of living life a bit more, the Lord has kindly opened my eyes to the fact that I could use a lot more patience. Where? Uh, In pretty much every part of my life. This is true at home with my wife and kids. That's true with my friends. Definitely true with my enemies. Or how about when I'm using almost any device with a screen? And surely when I'm driving my car, that may be some of my worst. Because as they say, I have a need. A need for speed. Or at least my version is, I have a need for you to drive at least the speed limit. Please. But all kidding aside, uh, if you're anything like me, the sad reality is that some of your lowest and worst moments in life, some of our most regretful words, decisions, actions, impatience played a huge role in them. And it's some comfort that we're not alone in this because if you open your Bible and you look at the Bible story, faithless impatience is also at the root of some of the most catastrophic failures amongst God's people. For example, consider, and I'll try to run through this quickly, Abraham and Sarah with Hagar, or Israel's wandering and grumbling in the desert. Or how about Moses? striking the rock and losing entrance into the land, Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of stew to Jacob, Saul, King Saul not waiting on the Lord and thus forfeiting his kingship, David rushing to satisfy his lust through adultery and murder. And the list goes on and on. So if you can relate, what hope, if any, is there for impatient people like us. Well, the hope is the only one that any of us ever have, which is the Lord himself, who we're told in verse 11 is compassionate and merciful. And this is also to affirm that yes, we're commanded to it because we can be patient and grow in patience, but how, how? Well, James' answer is, by looking to the Lord, what he's already done, what he will do in the future, which tells us who he is. 
So again, James says in 5 verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You see, he's already come. He's going to come again. And through it all, we can be still. We can be patient before the Lord, knowing that he is God. So thankfully, James reveals that the key to patience does not lie within you. All right? The answer for patience is not uh, learning how to count to ten when you're frustrated or, or screaming into a pillow. Rather, the heart of patience really comes down to your hope. What you believe you're waiting for, or rather who you think you're waiting for, the coming of the Lord. And we see this all the time in in life. For example, consider how patiently some people will wait hours, days, and even weeks, suffering the indignity of camping out on a sidewalk because they're waiting in line for the new iPhone, right? Or think about how uh, how long some of us will excitedly sit for hours, days, maybe even weeks again in a stuffy car or in an airplane, if we believe that it's taking us somewhere that we actually desire to be. I want to do this to to go to the Grand Canyon someday. Some of you have done it to go visit the Holy Land. And some of you really sad people have done it to get to the food pickup window at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. That's Spokane for you. So if patience really does come down to who or what we're waiting for, Let me ask you all this. If you knew that you were guaranteed that your long, dark night of waiting and suffering in whatever form would indeed one day come to an end and then afterwards your eyes would be open, fully, truly open for the first time ever to bask in the glory of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, to live in his presence and enjoy him forever, together with all his people, alongside an unmatched, unperishing inheritance in his eternal kingdom? You think you might say, hey, that might be worth waiting for. That might be worth being patient for. Here's how the Apostle Paul, who suffered greatly and patiently, put it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And to drive home this point, that basically it's all going to be worth it, just be patient, James then gives us this helpful illustration about a patient farmer. Let's go back to verse 7 and keep reading. It's a second sentence. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So why are we to be patient and endure suffering today or tomorrow or however long it takes till the Lord returns? Well, one of the chief reasons why is because right now, right now, 
We're working and waiting for the precious fruit. Now, it's timely that last kickoff Sunday, Carrie preached on Matthew chapter 9, the last couple of verses of that chapter, where Jesus looked with anguish and compassion out at a crowd of, of helpless and harassed people. And then he started to talk as if he were a farmer, referring to the lost world as a great, as a potentially great harvest, even giving himself the very title, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest. And if the Lord is the Lord of the harvest, what does that make us, disciples? We're as farmhands, aren't we? We're as privileged laborers who are called to participate in bringing in this precious harvest, which is ultimately a people for the Lord himself, Do we understand, Christians, that this harvest is actually why the Lord is delaying his coming? Because once he returns, it means the harvest is complete. That's what the coming of the Lord actually means. This is also why the passage from 2 Peter chapter 3 was our first reading for today. Listen as I read from it again, Um, which explains, which answers the question, why, why does the Lord delay? Why does he seem slow to return to us? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And this, brothers and sisters, is why we're called to patience. Because the Lord of the harvest has been patient toward you. And not only has he been patient toward you, but he's being patient right now toward a rebellious, lost world because his heart's desire is that he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Believers, this is why we are called to buck up, to strengthen our hearts, right? to establish our hearts, Verse 8, and be patient in suffering so that we can enjoy co-laboring right now with the Lord who is raising up a beloved, wonderful harvest of which we are also a precious part. And notice how James points out how farmers have no control over the final outcome of the crop since they have no control over the uh, decisive factors like the weather. Yeah, farmers are known for being patient, but they're also known for being very hard workers, especially back in James's day. Suffering the work of planting, of watering, and weeding. This is also why the apostles spoke of their work in terms of farming, right? I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So knowing and resting in the fact that God gives the growth, how can we be fruitful? How can we be fruitful in the work that God has called us to? The answer actually has to do with, you guessed it, patience. Specifically, our patience with one another as his fellow laborers. You imagine 
a dysfunctional farm where all the laborers are at each other's throats or grumbling against one another. Which leads us to our next point, which simply is, be patient with one another, for the Lord is judge. It's quite interesting. The, the, the judge symbol comes in speaking to believers, not necessarily out, the outsiders. So please look with me at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So here, James moves to one of the most practical applications of patience in our lives, and it's just, it's, it's, it cut me pretty deep this week, which is not grumbling against one another. Because when life gets hard, isn't grumbling something that we're, you know, like a moth to a flame, just kind of drawn to? Am I the only one? <laughs> now, what is grumbling exactly? I put it this way, grumbling is the most obnoxious combination of selfish complaining and blaming. It's that magic mixture of complaint and blame. And the goal of it really is to excuse ourselves from responsibility or taking any proactive ownership. It's unbelief. It's disobedience. <laughs> and let's get real. What are we like when we suddenly find ourselves in the pressure cooker of life. Because when work gets really stressful, or our finances become a struggle, or we face relational rejection, or we feel marginalized, or we get some terrible news about um, a loved one's health, we get frustrated, <laughs> we get anxious, we get angry, don't we? And then in our impatient attempt to make sense of it all, we grumble. I wanted to go a little bit lower. We grumble. And grumbling has a serious way of darkening our vision of the Lord, doesn't it? All of a sudden, he becomes very small. Our problem's very big. All of a sudden, he doesn't seem very good in our eyes. And the last thing we do is take our frustrations to the Lord, which he actually invites us to do. Instead, we choose to take out our frustrations against one another. Whoever happens to be nearby that terrible moment. Lashing out at our spouses, our families, our friends, our co-workers, and even our church. Anyone and everyone that we can draft into our herd of scapegoats, right? And it's here that I want to emphasize that there is a big difference between sinful grumbling against one another and raising sincere grievances and godly complaints with one another. Life is messy. Relationships are messy. We're still sinners, but there's a godly way to handle that. Grumbling is not one of them. Grumbling against one another, there's nothing constructive about it. And it has a long history of just tearing churches apart and watering down, muting our witness, helping us, causing us to forget our real mission. And that is also why the Lord takes grumbling against one another very 
very seriously. Turns out that if we indulge in such sinful speech, we could very well be inviting God's judgment in our lives. Again, James verse 9, do not grumble against one another. Once again, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This follows another warning that Jesus himself gave to his disciples, where he said, and I'm always a little scared by this one, for in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now let's examine ourselves, Christians. How's this area of our speech? Maybe the Spirit is trying to alert us, our conscience, about the grumbling that we maybe do on social media. Perhaps, young people, it's how you talk about your parents. Maybe in your marriage, it's how you talk to and about your spouse. Or in the church, how we talk about other believers who I think they're the problem. Well, whatever it may be, we tend to grumble against one another when they think maybe they're not around to hear, right? They're not gonna, they're not eavesdropping at the moment. But here's the helpful reminder we all need. Remember that the judge is standing at the door. He hears every careless word that we utter. This leads me to ask, who of us is ready to be measured by the same exact harsh measurements that we sometimes apply to other people? I'm, I'm definitely not. So then, what we're all in desperate need of at this point is a righteous judge who has first come as a merciful savior, who stands at the door, actually, willing and able to show grace and mercy to grumbling sinners like us. Here's the good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ is that Savior judge. And he said this, and I think he's saying this. He originally said this to a seriously wayward church in Laodicea who, was, who were all very full of themselves. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, this is what the Lord says. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's who Jesus is by the door. But he will reprove and discipline those he loves. Now, if the Lord is willing to show us such uh, refining loving kindness and mercy and grace, how can we not extend this to others, especially in our words? The reality is, if you say you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, it nullifies any and all self-righteous grumbling against one another, won't it? If you apply the gospel in faith, there's no room for grumbling in the church. Now, finally, 
James wants to empower our patience by drawing our attention to two great examples of suffering patiently and well. The first example are the prophets, and the second, it's none other than, other than Job. Job. And this brings us to our third and last point, which is be patient to be blessed. Let me repeat. Be patient to be blessed. Let's read from verse 10. 5 verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So here's something that you should know about what it means to be a Christian, in case you haven't heard this yet. To be a Christian, it means you are utterly blessed. I suppose that none of us actually has any true idea of how blessed we are if we are in Christ. But here's something else you won't often hear in the confines of cultural or consumeristic Christianity. And that is, if you want to know the blessing of God in Jesus Christ, prepare to suffer for his name's sake. Prepare to suffer. This is, this is where the prophets come in, right? They suffered. They were persecuted. When they spoke in the name of the Lord, they actually paid a price to choose the blessing of the Lord rather than the blessing of men. Which is why James is, is reminding of, of them of us here, or us of them here. And by the way, James isn't saying anything new. Because this is ex exactly also what Jesus himself taught. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Okay, Jesus said, Blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So do you desire to be truly blessed? To have real re reason to rejoice and to be glad? To one day enjoy a great eternal reward in heaven? Then be patient. Be steadfast in suffering and persecution like the prophets. And did you catch James's explanation as to why the, the prophets ultimately suffered? The answer to that, of what caused their suffering, is in verse 10. It's because they spoke in the name of the Lord. They opened their mouths. The reason the prophets suffered is because they were steadfast in season and out of season to speak the name of the Lord. Because job number one of the prophets was to proclaim who God was and thus to call people back to him, to warn them of the judgment to come if they do not. Now, church, do you realize that this very prophetic mantle of speaking the name of the Lord 
in the name of the Lord. It's been handed down to us in the work of the gospel. As a result of the resurrection, our life's greatest privilege and calling is to speak in the name of the Lord, to call people to repent and believe for the kingdom of God has arrived because the king has arrived. But again, like the prophets, speaking in the name of the Lord will involve patience in suffering. Don't be, don't be dismayed. Don't despair. You just got to go and read about the prophets. Because one thing that you learn and one thing you can be sure of is that none of them carried out this task in their own strength. It was the Lord who was always faithful to them. He never forsook his laborers. He's not the kind of guy that held back uh, wages from his farmhands. It was actually the Lord who established their hearts and caused them to stand firm. Which is why Jesus is able to promise us today Blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Because he also promises to his people proclaiming his name, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's out of Hebrews chapter 13. And that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28. So in the end, James ultimately wants us to get clear on this particular question. I think this is why he closes with Job. The question that he wants us to get clear on is, what is truly worth suffering for in this life? Or what purpose should I suffer patiently for? Fame? Fortune? Pleasure? A comfortable life of leisure like that other person I'm trying to keep up with? No. To answer that question, James brings us to our final example of suffering in God's purposes, which is the man, Job. Now, we don't have a ton of time to delve into Job's uh, uh, story, but I want to encourage you all to, to slowly read through it sometime if you haven't in a while, and also have a listen to the fantastic talks that Justin Moffat gave a couple months ago at our church. Uh, they're, they're live on the website. That said, Job was a man that suffered. I'm understating it. I mean, this guy suffered like few on earth have suffered. Job very suddenly lost everything. His family, his vast fortune, his wealth, his, his health. He lost everything short of his life. And James tells us here, if you look with wisdom... At this man and his story, what you're ultimately going to see is the purposes of the Lord and therefore the purpose of our lives. Huh? What? This is hard to hear. Who wants to suffer like Job did? Well, then let's hear it from the man himself, from Job himself, what he came to understand the purposes of the Lord to be. And this was at the height of his suffering with no end in sight. 
Listen carefully as I read a few portions from Job chapter 42. This is Job's final reply to the Lord after God finally spoke to him. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you, that is, you, Lord, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And this is the key verse, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the counterintuitive point I think Job is trying to make. According to Job, the purpose of the Lord was the Lord. <laughs> that is, God's purpose for Job was for him to see him for, for who he truly is, which is sovereign, good, loving, even in the reality of suffering. He came to a point of profound understanding of who God was so that he could lose everything, his family, his health, his wealth, and he could say, now my eye sees you. I don't think I've really wrapped my head and heart around this yet. But this brings us back to the final words of, of James, the final words of our passage in verse 11, where James says, basically, if you look at the steadfast suffering of the prophets and of Job, you too can see God at work in the world. And you too can see that, as he says in verse 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know, there's only one person that, that James refers to as Lord throughout his book, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. He's the other man that suffered. And no one else on earth, ever before or ever since, has suffered as he did. And if you're paying attention, it turns out he was actually the greatest prophet. He was also the greatest priest and the greatest king. And he came to patiently endure suffering as he spoke in the name of the Lord. He was ultimately crucified for doing so. But because he endured to the very end, he is exalted above all. He is the most blessed one. And if you look to him today, you too can know God's blessing and know something of his endurance in your life. Because if you look to him, you will see God's very own heart and his extravagant, patient love for sinning sufferers like ourselves. It's why when the fullness of time came, as Ephesians put it, like when the time was just right, God sent his son to lay down his life as a ransom for sinners. And one day, he will return to finish his harvest. 
to gather in his flock from all the ends of the earth. He will judge the living and the dead. And finally, this age of suffering and evil will be brought to an end. It will be no more. Now today, if you look to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know the compassion and mercy of the Lord today and forevermore. So be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the Lord, who is compassionate and merciful, is at hand. Amen.